The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today, um, we're going to talk about uh, something that's been much written about, the collapse of the Minnesota River Bridge. And even though there's been much written about it, it's been talked about, it's certainly been on television. Um believe there's there's a documentary on the on the subject. But today I'm just delighted to have Paul Jabe, private investigator Paul Jabe, who is a person that was on the scene almost immediately and has much to say about his investigation of what happened there and the people that it affected. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Francie. How are you? I'm very good, and I'm so happy to have you here today. Likewise. So, um, but Paul, I know, you know, many people listening to the show know you personally, but also there's many people that don't. So, Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the private investigation business? What did you do before? All of those kinds of things. Well, Francie, after I uh, left the University of Minnesota in the late, mid to kind of late 80s, um, I had kind of stumbled upon a job as a staff investigator for Equifax Services, one of the large credit bureaus. At that time, they had a very large field force of licensed investigators. So I cut my teeth for a few years doing really kind of routine investigative things for um, generally insurance companies and corporate clients and surveillance and home inspections and and things like that. And then in 1991, I decided that if I'm going to ever start my own company, I need to do it when um, I can afford to do it. And when I was in my mid-20s, I started uh, Heartland Investigative Group. Um, and over the last 24 years, we've had nice, steady growth, and now we're probably the largest agency here in the Midwest. Interesting. You know, it's so interesting. Most private investigators that get you talk to that are not former law enforcement did stumble into the business. Mm-hmm. So did you answer an ad, or how did that happen? Yeah, it was kind of odd. I was um, going to visit my mother. It was uh, April of um, 1980 on the telephone, and I started uh, panning my way through the paper, and before I knew it, I was in the on ads, and an ad just jumped out uh, from the, oh. the pages that says, investigators needed. I didn't think much of it, but when I got back to my own home, I thought, you know, 
I'm having trouble finding that elusive job as a political scientist. So maybe maybe right. I should take a flyer on this, and I did, and I was hired that afternoon. Interesting. I'm sure. Yeah. I can imagine uh, they were delighted to have somebody walk in with a, a degree in political uh, <laughs> political science. Absolutely. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Uh. <laughs> so, um, so you were there how long then? I was just there a few years. Um, it became apparent to me, and they were not shy about saying that they were going to be moving to a, a digital company. And in fact, today, everyone knows the name Equifax is one of the three large credit bureaus. So right. um, I, I, I think I beat the, the punch by probably five or six years, um, kind of saw the writing on the wall. And um, I, I thought, you know, I have no... I have no bills. I have no net worth. I have nothing right now. So why not see if this works? And um, so I, I quit and I got licensed and um, hmm. uh, just kind of you know built it brick by brick, client by client. It is so interesting. Now I know you have a lot of credentials, Paul. You uh, now you're a chartered fraud investigator. What does that mean? Uh, that is a designation for people who um, uh, work in, in uh, uh, large fraud cases. Um, so not necessarily forensic accounting like the certified fraud examiners, but mm-hmm. uh, a designation to connote a, a kind of a broader, uh, broader experience. Um, our okay. firm does um, a lot of reactive work, and um, a portion of that is in, is in fraud. Okay, and and so is that a certification of sorts? Well, it's a chartered uh, designation, um, and as I think our listeners know, um, uh, if you're chartered in as a um, as an expert, um, they base it on your um, life experiences generally. I see. Um, okay. Yeah, and it's um, um, uh, you know a small uh, a small group, small association, certainly not as large as the uh, certified fraud examiners and. And uh, it appealed to me because of the broader uh, experience in fraud. You know, right now when you think of fraud, uh, as investigators, you think, oh, you need to be a certified fraud examiner, which is, you mm-hmm. know, CPA level uh, mm-hmm. accounting, essentially. And um, I don't have that skill set, although we do have certified fraud examiners on our staff. And you're a member of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Yes, I have been, uh, Francie, for a number of years. Uh, their training is exceptional, um, good networking. Um, but again, it's uh, I, I'll bet there's uh, less than 5% of the members are not uh, accountants by trade. Huh, interesting. Uh, and then I met you through the National Association of Legal Investigators years ago, mm-hmm. and you, where you were the national director of that association. And, mm-hmm. and I think you were a two-term national director, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I got involved um, in the association in the early 2000s, and I served, I think, five or six terms as the national secretary, so I gained a lot of experience working under some really strong leaders uh, of that association, Um, and and then I elevated to the post of national director for a few years, and uh, that was an exceptional experience. And as our listeners know, uh, NALI, the National Association of Legal Investigators, uh, organization. 
Uh, Paul, you're cutting out a little bit. Uh, you know, they're a, a terrific group of people, so I was honored to lead that association. Oh, that's great. And then, of course, we can't leave this se segment without mentioning that you are the host and founder of a popular PI podcast, The American Private Investigator. Yes, uh, Francie, as you know, for the last, I think we're coming up on six years now, um, uh, uh, doing the podcast. We do it monthly, and uh, one of the things that we tend to focus on uh, a little bit more, which I think is kind of unique, is that we like to talk a, a lot about what it takes to operate an agency. Um, mm -hmm. There's quite a bit of very, very good information out there about the technical part of being an investigator. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, how to shoot surveillance at night, how to interview a minor. But one of the things that we find is lacking, I think, from where I sit, is, um, uh, you know, the running of your agency. How, how do you effectively operate a small business? And right. so our show tilts a little bit more towards that. So we'll have bankers and accountants on the program and marketing experts. Um, mm -hmm. And occasionally we'll bring on, you know, um, specific, you know, practice area experts, but um, uh, generally speaking, we like to focus in on the, on the business side of things. Yeah, and if people are interested in uh, tuning into that show, how would they do that? Uh, it's available either through our website at AmericanPrivateInvestigator.com, and of course you can pick it up on iTunes uh, by just putting in American P.I., Great. Okay, cool. Well, I know it's a good show, and I know you do a great job on it, Paul. So, uh, And we probably should mention Tim O'Rourke at the same time, don't you think? <laughs> yes. A mutual Tim, friend, for sure. Yes. Yes, a good friend, Tim O'Rourke, who is, has his own show in Florida. And uh, you want to talk about that just for a second, what that's about? Yeah, Tim uh, started a, a kind of a larger platform uh, called the Global Investigators um, Group. And uh, through that platform, they do some video uh, programs. Um, and Tim does, a, I think, a monthly uh, program as well. Um, and they've got a very broad-based uh, platform where they do some training things. And some iconic names in the industry are involved there, including um, another mutual fr friend, Rory McMahon, a terrific uh, criminal defense investigator in Florida, uh, Tim O'Rourke, who's a tremendous investigator in addition to being the uh, president of the Florida Association, where he's done a tremendous job. Uh, Dean Beers, who's a prolific writer, is also uh, part of their platform. So right. I always tell people, Francie, that um, in our industry, um, it's so important to get the inside story and for people to listen to Tim O'Rourke, pick up your program, listen to my show. There's another great guy out in Utah named Scott Fulmer um, who does the Utah Gumshoe, um, where he's kind of a storyteller. And mm -hmm. I think if you uh, broaden out your, uh, um, your net a little bit and start picking up these shows, you, you get a really good sense, I think, of what's going on in the industry. I agree. It's kind of like a patchwork quilt. We're all doing a little bit different things, and they're interconnected. Correct. 
Well, I, I love your show, Paul, so I'll just go on record as saying that. So, um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. So let's talk about this, uh, this crazy investigation you did, because I, I know it uh, probably changed a lot of things, the way you do them, and mm-hmm. uh, changed maybe your perspe- perception of investigations. So Yeah, it was quite the uh, experience. Yeah, this is eight years ago, August 1st, 2007. And this is a bridge that uh, it's a eight lanes, is that correct? Eight lanes of traffic um, spans, I don't know, what, about 2,000 mm-hmm. feet or so? Yeah, it's an interstate. Uh, interstate 35W runs all the way from Texas um, all the way up almost to the Canadian border. So it's a, a major interstate. And... It, uh, it spans the Mississippi River in Minneapolis, um, uh, and it's uh, hundreds and hundreds of feet above the water at that point. Uh, it was built in the 1960s as a really, quite frankly, very unattractive uh, bridge. It was just a steel gusset-looking uh, bridge. Um, Typically in cities like if you think of Pittsburgh or London, where there's a major river going through, you have all kinds of bridges. And, mm-hmm. and the bridges that precede it and are after it, are there's some very beautiful uh, bridges that, that span that um, the, the beautiful river there. But this was not one of them. This was a very utilitarian uh, interstate bridge. Um, I think when it collapsed, uh, it was maybe uh, two or three lanes um, Huge, huge connector, uh, thousands of cars every day. I've driven over that bridge, um, oh, my God, hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, Paul, what were you doing when you heard about the bridge? Where were you and what were you doing? Well, it, it happened at 6 o'clock, and typically by that time um, I would have left uh, the, the office, but I had a conference call uh, from 5 to 6 o'clock with uh, – people down in in Denver and uh, downtown was you know pretty well cleared out and I'm in a I was on the ninth floor of a you know an office building smack in the middle of downtown Minneapolis and just as I was getting off this phone call at right around six o'clock I started to hear sirens and they were quite loud because they reverberate between all the buildings but Mm. I didn't think much of it you know that's you know fairly common that you're going to hear sirens so right um I had uh, started walking back towards my my car, which was in a, a parking ramp, and uh, got into my car. And as I was driving west uh, towards my home, um, I saw a lot of emergency vehicles on uh, Interstate 94, um, including um, county rescue uh, boats, uh, which is, a, wow. of course, a common thing in Minnesota because we have 15,000 lakes. Um, but it, it seemed a little odd to me that there was a, just this activity. So I, I began to think, oh, boy, you know, clearly something has happened. Well, when I got home at about 6.20, I think, somewhere in that time period, I, um, I checked my email when I got home, and I had at least a dozen emails from uh, attorneys saying, call me immediately, um, call me ASAP. Um, and then I knew something was on. I turned on the, the television and, of course, um, saw what was going on. 
You must have just sat there with your mouth open. Yeah, you know, Francie, I know that you and our listeners can, um, you know, really relate to this. You know, most of the work that we do is either very rote kind of due diligence work or we're checking something out or we're looking at an incident that occurred some time ago. Mm-hmm. So while it might be a catastrophe or a murder or, you know, something horrible, the emotional component and the surprise component part of it has passed. Right. Um, you know, if you're talking about, yeah, I remember reading about that murder or I remember that fire or whatever the case is. So this was a little different for us. It's It's kind of rare that you get these you know, emergency, you know, hyper, hyper uh, sensitive kind of cases that just land on you. And it's happened a few times in my career, but this, this was, this was big. Well, and it also made you become a witness yourself. Yeah. In a, in a way. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then what happened? What did you do next? Well, uh, there's a couple things that I, uh, I knew, in my mind, we're going to ha- we're going to happen at the as this was happening in the first several hours, Francie. They were not sure what went wrong. They there was speculation mm-hmm. that it could have been a terrorist attack, mm-hmm. um, and I knew that they were going to begin to start treating this like a crime scene, and that access to the site was going to get more and more difficult um, as every hour went by. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it became apparent that there were cars and bodies floating down the river. Um, so we knew that in order for us to memorialize what was going on, we had to get down to the site as quickly as possible. The unique thing is that it was very difficult to um, get across the river because they began to shut down bridges before and, and after um, this bridge. So. Luckily, we had staff investigators that lived on either side. So mm. my very first phone call was to our, one of our senior investigators, um, and I told him he immediately needs to get down um, uh, to the University of Minnesota um, is on each side of the river. And um, uh, so everything was kind of centered around uh, the edge of downtown and the University of Minnesota campus. Mm-hmm. So one of our staff investigators got down on one side. We had another person on the other side. And I said, look, get as close as you can, and let's just observe. So spray as much video as we can, because the, the scene was changing, was moving. You know, you have, you have this enormous bridge deck that fell into the river, and right. now it's all going, you know, conceivably could roll down the river. Right. It, Right. So key pieces of evidence could be disappearing. So uh, that was our first step. The second step then was I called my uh, very good friend, um, who I've used on numerous cases over the years, um, to charter his plane and see if we could get some aerial um, shots. And I knew that airspace was going to be shut down. Right. Um, so we engaged him immediately and were able to get up. Um, I think the next morning by the time he couldn't get up before nightfall so we were out there pretty early the next day and before you indeed, go to the next paul before you go to the next day let's take a quick break because this is this is a really important piece we're coming back just momentarily with paul jabe
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today we're discussing the many uh, Mississippi River Bridge collapse. Paul Jabe is my guest. Paul, you were just talking about um, getting a friend of yours to get a plane out there and uh, right away, as soon as possible, before the airspace closed down. What happened next? Well, we chartered this uh, small uh, aircraft, slow-moving aircraft, and with a 400-millimeter zoom lens, we were able to make a couple passes over the river and shot some incredibly um, high-density photos, uh, high-resolution photos, um, several hundred of them, um, uh, as the scene was, you know, at that moment. Um, And uh, um, that was, I knew that was critically important. We weren't ever sure if we were going to use them or not, but I thought whatever side of this we end up on, um, Mm -hmm. these could be of, of tremendous value. Um, they and did shut down the airspace shortly after that. Did they? And now the the attorneys that that called you to get out there, they were were they both plaintiff attorneys and defense attorneys? Yeah, we had the interesting thing for for myself was um, we had um, you know probably close to a dozen inquiries within minutes. You know, we're a pretty big agency. We have a lot of clients. And I thought, well, how are we going to decide who to work for? And I thought the only fair way to do this is to connect with the person who called me, emailed me first. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a plaintiff's firm and were interested to know, essentially, is there a case here? Um, sure. Are there victims? Because we did not know if there were victims. Was there any obvious fault? So essentially what we were tasked with um, out of the gate was 
what happened, who were the victims or potential plaintiffs in this, were, were there any, um, and who was responsible? So who would, you know, who would the mm-hmm. potential defendants in this matter be? And, of course, that's, a, that's an enormous task uh, under any circumstances, but particularly in a situation like this. And all of those cases at this point in time, of course, are, have been uh, resolved. Yeah, it was a very unique resolution to this case here. At the end of the day, there was no case for the plaintiffs because the state had a cap on what the damages could be. Mm-hmm. So what happened was that um, several plaintiffs' law firms decided to work together pro bono on behalf of the uh, plaintiffs and work with uh, essentially um, the state uh, in dispersing this fund. And it was a, a testament really to good government. Um, mm. uh, it was incredibly fair. Um, I believe everyone opted in to the process um, it was it was quite an impressive thing to see how this community handled this from the moment that bridge collapsed to uh, making sure that there was some level of justice for the victims. That's a fabulous thing to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the reason for the collapse was just where, wasn't it? Just where on the bridge? Yeah, without getting too technical, it did come down to the thickness of some plates that were um, underneath the bridge, and uh, it was just simply a design flaw. Uh, Hmm. The bridge had been inspected regularly uh, by a variety of different government agencies. Because it's an interstate, there were some federal agencies involved, there were some state agencies, some city agencies, and even the University of Minnesota would do a a somewhat routine inspection of the bridge Mm -hmm. um, that I think they used as a learning experience. so at the end of the day, what they determined was that it was a, a simple design flaw. And the bridge at the time, let's see, it was built sometime in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So it was, what, 40 years old? I think it was old? about 40, 50, yeah, it was about 40, 40 years old. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and and amazingly, since then, there's been a lot of uh, controversy about bridges all over the country that are in at risk. Yeah, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that we haven't seen another failure. Um, I know that there's, you know, smaller failures uh, for sure, but um, this certainly, uh, you know, wakes up um, regulators and inspectors. Um, so they did look at, you know, um, this vintage of a bridge, you know, all around the country, and I think that there were some steps taken to reinforce um, some of these older, older bridges. Yeah, there was actually just an expose about a month ago about uh, bridges, a number of bridges. Some of us, some of them in California, that are uh, that are in need of repair, immediate repair, mm-hmm. that are at risk. But okay, so go, let's go back to the case. So you're you're taking the footage, you're trying to to determine uh, the cause. Where did you go from there? Well, we ended up engaging we kind of set up a war room in our office we have a we had a large conference room and we decided that we were going to assign tasks and kind of figure out a way to synthesize all this information um, and you know figure out a way to coherently communicate with our client um, so the first step really was you know there's no case here unless there's victims um, and there's no case here if, 
if there's no responsible uh, party. So we had different people working on different tasks. So one of the things that happens at these kind of, um, and I'll, I'll use the generic term crime scene, is that mm-hmm. people and victims and, and, and others tend to stay and hang around at the, at the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And so the challenge was finding out people who either saw what happened, you know, so there were people kind of milling around um, that, uh, you know, they were just short of the bridge when it collapsed, so they saw something. Uh, there were people that were in sections of the bridge that had collapsed but had not fallen into the river. Um, so it was pretty easy to identify who these people were because the scene was being swarmed by both local and national media. So, right. you know, within hours, CNN is there, MSNBC is there, the national news. Of course, all the local stations are, you know, they, they, they had a brand uh, for this thing. Uh, you know, as it happened, and, um, uh, you know, it was constant coverage. So all of a sudden you'd see someone talking to Anderson Cooper or someone, and um, there, there was a lesson here that, you know, some of these people turn into these media darlings. Um, right. They want to be on TV, and all of a sudden you realize that mm, that person really doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, the Red Cross was there and would have tents set up where people could – you know, victims' families could come and try to find out, you know, what was going on. Um, so that was one track that we were on was to determine, you know, are there victims? And if so, can we identify those victims? Um, now, the next... Excuse me, Paul. I, you, you had mentioned earlier that uh, there were bodies in the river. Did you, did you actually see that, or was that something you were told? No, I never. We never witnessed that, and I don't recall actually seeing any pictures. The there were cars that were submerged and that were kind of bobbing down the river. Um, mm-hmm. Divers were sent out um, they had around the clock for several days, and they um, recovered some bodies at, at that point. Um, but for for as insane as the situation was, you would have thought there'd have been more carnage. Mm-hmm. That it would have been uglier. And perhaps it would have been if it would have collapsed onto a hard surface. Well, um, and how many how many cars were on the bridge at the time? About, you know, I think it was in the neighborhood of fifty or so. There was a school bus. Um, oh, that's right. It was just after rush hour. Thankfully, um, the, the the traffic patterns on that bridge, of course, would be, you know, significant between, you know, three uh, thirty and five thirty as everyone's leaving downtown. Um, and, of course, in the morning, the same thing. So they, in many ways, dodged a bullet that, you know, it fell um, at, that, at that point. Well, and I remember seeing uh, how they got the kids out. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Off the bus and off the bridge. That, that was incredible. And, and if anybody's seen, I'm sure people have seen the pictures of this. Pictures are just incredible. They yeah. <laughs> have to see it's that surreal. people actually survived yeah. <laughs> at all. Yeah. It, it it really should have been much worse when you look at the fact pattern and if you didn't know how many people had died, you would have thought it would have been, you know, dozens if not 100 people. Um, yeah, let's see, so 13, had, we, 13 people died, is that right? Yeah, 13 yeah. died. I think 47 were injured. Um, so the way we were operating, Francie, was, you know, setting up 
a couple of people to determine, you know, are there victims? Are there a lot of victims? You know, is there anything going on on that end? The other side was, boy, let's look around and see if we can find out what the cause of this was. And one of the interesting theories that emerged was that a company that had a standard contract with the state of Minnesota was doing some maintenance work, and they had a small shed uh, set up actually on the bridge, and they were Mm -hmm. doing some uh, repaving work. And, of course, you know, everyone's thinking, boy, it could have been them. Uh, who's this company? What were they exactly doing? What kind of permits did they have? So everyone's running around in a million different mm-hmm. directions trying to figure out if, you know, a company that was just putting a, basically a, a, another, you know, layer on top of the bridge, if they were responsible. Uh, we looked underneath the bridge to see if we could find anything, you know, any, um, you know, equipment or cranes or anything. So we had to really memorialize the scene as best we could because right. – Responsible parties, you know, if they say, boy, get, you know, get our truck out of there, um, you know, things could be moving and, and there could be the potential for, you know, a cover-up or, or whatever. So sure. Um, sure. Yeah, there was really two kind of concurrent tracks going on at that time. So then, um, then you did you, so you, so you did contact uh, families of victims and families of the injured. Well, is that right? You know, as as you know, this is kind of a uh, a very dicey area in in law, mm-hmm. um, and so we were extraordinarily careful about what we would say if we were approaching a victim. We couldn't, um, you know, the the anti solicitation rules for lawyers are extremely strict. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of change from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but we wanted to really make sure that we weren't you know, ambulance chasing, if you will. For sure. Um, so how did you do that? Well, it was uh, uh, um, some narrative that we agreed to um, that we actually wrote down so that um, we could um, very, very carefully needle our way through um, that issue. And um, uh, so that was, we didn't end up talking to a lot of people um, Brancy, because they became, it, it became evident immediately who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was only 13 people, another 47 that were injured. And it became clear, fairly clear early on that um, there potentially was going to be a cap on this. I see. And, um, uh, so it... Um, uh, it, it, it did not end up being a, a case where we interviewed, you know, hundreds of people as to what went on. Uh, this was a case much more for us about, you know, triage. It was do the best we can to get to an answer within days. Uh, you know, is there anything here? What's going on? Um, and the, and the, uh, the investigation went on for, for a few weeks, didn't it? Correct. Um, one I mean, of the I'm talking about we, the bridge investigation part. Yeah, I mean the the investigation from a, the standpoint of you know the the um, the, the federal agencies involved right. and whatnot went on for of course months, um, if not years. You know, they extracted all the the uh, wreckage from the river and put it in what they called a boneyard, um, 
uh, at an area called the Bohemian Flats, and it and it all, it sat there for years. They just recently um, scrapped it huh. um, because you know it was evidence. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that went on for quite some time. We continued the investigation even after our client said, you know, I don't know that there's any space for us here. And we thought, well, we might end up getting a, a different client. So let's continue to work on this case um, and uh, continue to gather our own evidence and, and we'll see where it takes us. Mm-hmm. And did it take you anywhere? No, it did not. We um, uh and again, it became fairly evident within several weeks that, um, you know, the, these things, will, it, it'll get settled. Um, and uh, there was just nothing there. It turned out to be a pretty, you know, pretty boring uh, mechanical engineering issue. Really? Um, so there was no, no accident. There was nothing that, you know, spurred it to fall. It just wore out. But um, it must have taken your whole staff it must have consumed everybody mm. in your company to work on this yeah yeah we had probably 10 or 12 of us and um you know the the tough part of this and, and you hear this brancy we hear it a lot from our friends that do you know large like death penalty cases mm-hmm. where um a case like that can suck all the oxygen out of your agency absolutely um, and even if it's for a short term, even if it's for, you know, uh, two weeks. Um, so we're also very aware that we had to continue on with our core business um, and handle well, you, the, those customers as well. Yeah, you, you did have other clients. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but so this but at the same time, been... at the same time, you probably had clients that were very sympathetic to what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, because because everybody in Minneapolis was affected by the bri- this bridge collapse. Mm-hmm. No matter who you are, you know you kind of bond together as a community when you have a disaster like that. So uh, people have a tendency to give you a lot of latitude. Yeah, and you you see that often in you know uh, cities that are flattened by a tornado or floods. Uh, you know, there's countless examples of these disasters that happen, and people really buck up and. And um, and that was really the impressive thing. Um, you know, we have a culture in Minnesota where we we generally really like our our government. Um, we have a 85 percent uh, voting rate. Um, it's fairly civil compared to a lot of other areas. Mm-hmm. And it was really impressive how everyone kind of worked together and and they got this thing settled and they put that bridge up uh, in 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 a matter of I think a year. They had a brand new bridge built. Um, so it was a really interesting thing all the way around. A great um, example for the rest of the country, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, Paul, we need to take another break. Uh, Paul and I will return momentarily. Be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. 
It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. The topic of the day is investigating the uh, Mississippi River Bridge collapse with Paul Jabe. And Paul, we were just, you and I were just talking off line here. Uh, I'm sure you learned, there were many lessons you gained from this investigation and this experience. Would you share that with us? Certainly. Well, Francie, one of the things that we're talking about, you know, at the top of the show was that it's pretty rare that in your career as a private investigator, you get cases like this. They might happen once or twice. And I think it's really critical to uh, know that a case like this can happen to anyone listening to this program. You could have a, a case, maybe not quite this big, but you know, a railroad explosion or, you know, anything can happen. Mm-hmm. And um, we were fortunate in that we we had done a lot of very big cases before, so we knew that we could handle the volume of information, that we could manage the information. We just had to do it faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first lesson here was something that was just really validated, and that was, you know, simple things like, boy, you really need to know how to contact everybody. You know, so every one of our staff, um, we give them uh, every six months a laminated sheet with literally every single potential contact number for that person. They have to keep it mm. in the car, in their, in their briefcase, at their desk. So when this happened, I was able to connect with my team immediately. Um, mm. So little things like that. So the, the being prepared, I think, was, was big. The other key lesson that, that I learned was, um, you need to you need to be very calm in these kind of situations here, and you can't let your emotions get in the way. Um, and sometimes you have to make the decision about what investigators work on these cases because sometimes people can't separate that. That doesn't mean mm-hmm. they're not good investigators. Mm-hmm. Um, that just means that they might get just too upset um, on dealing uh, with a case like this. So being very objective and very, very calm um, in, in a situation like this is, is critical. Good point. The other, the other big lesson, Francie, and, and you certainly know this as a, as a very accomplished investigator, is we had to make sure that anything that we 
took in or anything that we wrote down um, uh, was treated as evidence. Um, For sure. And we didn't want to get into a situation where we would either become witnesses or we'd get in, you know, get sideways or get in trouble by, you know, asking the wrong question or, or elbowing our way into an area that we shouldn't have been in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really kind of keeping your wits about yourself and, and knowing what to memorialize and what not to in some cases. Right. And, and Paul, how did you manage all the data? That must have been a job in itself. Mm-hmm. Well, we had developed a spreadsheet, um, a database immediately, where we put every single thing that we learned into this database. And we had a, a, a staff person that was particularly gifted in managing that kind of stuff so that we knew that we could, you know, sort this information, that, we, um, that everything had to end up in this database as quickly as possible. So... Um, you know, every time someone kind of finished with one of their runs or whatever they were doing, it was imperative that they got that information into our system as quickly as possible. Now, um, is that is that a database database you created in house, or is it a something you buy? We created it in house. It ended up being just a simple spreadsheet. Okay. Um, and uh, we felt that that was the easiest way to um, to, to uh, catalog the information, and we knew that it would be secure. Um, we also had in this war room, um, you know, huge whiteboard set up and, you know, we had all kinds of, of things on the, on the whiteboard. We, we had, uh, people to not talk to, you know, um, um, all kinds of different, uh, things on that. So that was a, that was less of a challenge. And I was very proud of the fact that we could manage, you know, a, basically a fire hose of information coming at us, mm-hmm. um, and making sense of it. And the other you said big pe- lesson, I'm sorry. Go, uh, ahead. go ahead, Francie. I'm sorry. I was, I was just going to ask that you said a uh, list of people not to talk to. Who would those kind of people be? Well, we did determine that there were people that um, turned out to be um, showboating a little bit. They weren't mm. really involved in this case. And, you know, the media, you can't rely on media sources uh, to get your information because everybody knows what you know, what the media wants. If it bleeds, it leads. So they want dramatic witnesses. Um, uh, you know, they talk to, you know, a guy sitting on that school bus ad nauseum. Uh-huh. Um, and so we made a rule pretty much right out of the gate that don't chase witnesses that are showing up on CNN or, you know, wherever else that if we're, if we're going to find information, let's get it on our own and be a little bit smarter. Um, and, uh, um, really use our investigative skills mm. in, in getting to these people. Um, so there turned out to be a couple of yahoos that were um, <laughs> just wanted basically to get on TV, and um, it, 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 got, it got a little silly at times. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's always the case when there's something uh, that hits the news, high profile. Sure, yeah. And you look how many people from 9-11 said that they were victims. Mm-hmm. Um, and got checks from people and sympathy and all that kind of stuff, and turns out they were in Poughkeepsie. Right, right. <clears throat> okay, I interrupted you. Go ahead with what you were going to say. I'm sorry. You know, the other thing um, that I think it, it sounds very um, logical, but in cases like this, you have to really respect what's going on. And there are times when you get a little pushy 
when you're an investigator and there are times when you don't. And we had to just be very aware of being very respectful of what was going on Mm -hmm. and um, respect the victims, respect the situation, respect law enforcement, um, uh, who really surprisingly didn't get too aggressive. They did continue to push back the perimeter of this Mm -hmm. case, and we had a little difficulty later in the investigation uh, getting access to, um, uh, you know, certain things in certain areas they were... Um, they were, you know, really tough on that. Um, so I think it was a situation of just really know your place in this and, and try to think about how you want to feel about this case in five years. Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting comment because I think that uh, at least uh, my experience, of course, was the uh, 1989 earthquake in, in Northern California, and it was a similar thing. So I think that when everybody is emotionally involved in the event, whatever that event is, it affects us all, we, re, we treat each other with more respect than we do if we're just sent to, a, say, a crime scene mm-hmm. to handle it. it. It seems to be the case that people mm-hmm. are just uh, more willing to work with each other and, and uh, help each other and not have that reactive, get out of my mm-hmm. face kind of a reaction. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with how the, this community handled something like this. I mean, when you look at the, you know, take Katrina, for instance, and what a disaster and what a social right. nightmare that turned out to be, mm-hmm. uh, where people were acting like children and it got, you know, crazy and, yeah. and out of control, and, and uh, this was handled in such a, uh, a respectful way. The, the interesting part of this, Francie, is that, uh, at my agency, we do a lot of um, executive-level protection work. We have a, a team of guys that just handle, um, you know, threats and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. We've been doing that for a number of years, and we actually did more billing on providing uh, security for funerals of mm. the victims because there was a, um, and this person, this group showed up at uh, Vice President Joe Biden's son's funeral, some crazy church out of Kansas that decided they were going to protest these funerals. Oh, my gosh. You're kidding. Um, that, you know, this is God's way of saying we're sinners and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and mm-hmm. it was real. They were real, viable, disruptive situations. Um, so we ended up doing just a lot of very, you know, odd kind of spillover work from, from this situation. So um, strictly from a, you know, a, 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 a business standpoint, this was a very large matter for us. I mean, we ended up getting uh, uh, doing quite a bit of work on it. Mm. Well, it makes sense. Now, were you, because um, many times when people have uh, high-profile funerals, their houses are raided or broken into. Did you have any of that situation? <laughs> oh, we had it all covered. Did you? <laughs> angles. Yeah, it was, um, you know, we, we, in that business, you know, a lot of people in that uh, executive protection side of the business. You know, you have to be prepared for all kinds of scenarios. And that, mm-hmm. unfortunately, that was one of them. Uh, thankfully, we were able to keep um, all of that under control. But um, I, I, it, the, the one point that I, I became slightly unraveled was um, uh, our agency had, uh, had known one of the victims, um, uh, mm. not terribly closely, but it was, you know, close enough. And, and I was sitting in this funeral home with um, 
uh, the funeral director and one of the family members, and um, the the level of rage and anger and sadness over someone protesting a funeral um, yeah. was was really something to witness. It was um, it, it was appalling, and it was one of the few times in my professional career that um, I really internalized something. I just found it to be just so outrageous. Um, and um, so there were a couple of times in this uh, process where I got my, my dander up for sure. Yeah, I, I can imagine. The, you know, the opportunists are always out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it's, and it's unfortunate because it affects many people that are, are in vo- very vulnerable positions. Mm-hmm. But it, I mean, it just sounds like, I mean, I, I read that how much the uh, Salvation Army, for example, helped out, mm-hmm. uh, the Mayo Clinic helped out, the Red Cross. I mean, it's just like the whole community, just as you ex- described, came together in an amazing way. And I, I just think it's a, uh, just a fantastic example of American mm-hmm. culture and and helpfulness that we Americans are known for uh, often. We don't see it often on the news, but we are known for that when it comes down to the wire. Well, this is one of those cases, too, where, you know, uh, uh, you kind of get what you pay for. We're heavily taxed in Minnesota. Our income tax rate is one of the highest in the country, but it really shows up in situations like this where they were actually prepared for this. Um, Mm. You know, they, they sensed that something was going to happen at some point, and they had just run drills on it earlier. And, um, you know, the hospitals were cooperative. Everyone cooperated. There were very few hiccups. No one was, you know, moving to the front of the line to try to take credit for it. Um, very bipartisan, very um, very respectful. And the fact that the victims were um, very fairly compensated without a lot of um, ugliness. Um, sure. I thought was impressive. So, you know, looking back on it, it was, um, you know, a, a terribly unfortunate and horrible uh, catastrophe, but um, handled as best as you possibly could handle it. So, Paul, we have only a couple of minutes left, but is there anything looking back now that you would do differently? Or do you think mm. that you just kind of reacted in, in a logical way and you probably would do the same again? You know, I, I do think that uh, there, there may have been some operational things that we, we learned on this that, you know, things were spinning very, very quickly. Um, and when you're kind of in the vortex, you know, you think differently. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, things that you thought were important ended up not being so important. So I do think that, um, you know, God forbid, if, if anything like this should happen again, I think we would be better prepared. Um, and having... You know, we did have some people on uh, with law enforcement background on our team, and they do bring uh, a, a very calming sense to this because unlike private investigators, law enforcement, they do see a lot of things as they happen. Yeah, um, for sure. And, um, and so that was a, a lesson learned there that there's um, good experiences that people have that, that work in situations like this. You became a first responder, so that's you, you can't uh, <laughs> take that away from you. So we have to close the show, Paul. Thank you so much. This has been uh, fascinating. Uh, as I told you earlier, I heard you uh, speak on this topic years ago at uh, the NALI conference and again at Valley. So uh, thank you again, 
And to my listeners, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Paul Jabe. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.